0: The reading today uh, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, reading from verses uh, 20 to 30. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said... Uh, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago Do not murder And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother Will be subject to judgment Again, anyone who says to his brother Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin But anyone who says You fool Will be in danger of the fire of hell Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be be to God. God. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Marion, and and well done. I know know Marion happens to have a very bad back at the moment, so... In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was uh, roaming around the internet the other day and I happened to come across the random Elizabethan curse generator. True, you can go to this site and you can select how many times you would like to be cursed and then you hit the curse me button and it will curse you that many times. Just like Shakespeare would have done. For example, you can be cursed in any of the following ways. Thou rank beef-witted rat's bane. Or thou unmuzzled heavy-handed hedge pig. Or thou jaded swag-bellied scut. Or thou beslovering hasty-witted mammoth. Could go on like this all day, couldn't we? Um, thou paunchy weather-bitten nut-hook. Anyway, perhaps better not go on all day, but um, today's Bible reading is about curses, and uh, that's about as tenuous a link as I can make as an excuse for reading you those. But um, in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus gives a whole series of teaching about what life is like in God's kingdom and what we must do to live in it and to be followers of Jesus and also what we mustn't do, which includes curses. And we can call this way of life living according to God's good law. And we're going to look at this today from Matthew 5 and see that Jesus tells us, three things. One, what we must do. Second, that we'll never do it. And third, but that in and through him we can. So firstly, what we must do, well Jesus said there, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgement. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgement and anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rucka, is answerable to the court and anyone who says you fool will be in the danger of the fire of hell. Yet God and Jesus were angry and the Bible also says, in your anger do not sin, implying that it must be possible to be angry and not sin. Well, Jesus isn't talking here in Matthew 5 about all anger, but rather a particular type of anger that is the problem. And we're given a clue to this by him connecting the anger with the Aramaic word raka. Used as a curse. And that word raka means literally empty or nothing. So it's like calling, calling someone raka is equivalent to saying that they're a nobody. They're a loser. You know, or, or a non-entity. And it's actually to look on a person with contempt. As though they don't count as a human being. And so it implies that they should be wiped from the face of the earth. It's like when Paul said that he was treated as the scum of the earth. And we don't even need to say this. It's all perfectly packaged and expressed whenever we sneer at someone. It's all there. There's pure hate in this. God's anger is never like that. His anger is always motivated by love. In love, God created and redeemed us in his image and to know the best and richest life that we can as we embrace his truth and goodwill for our lives. To turn away from him and his truth threatens to rob us of all of this and destroy it and God gets angry because he doesn't want this for us and he, <clears throat> he will angrily fight against every power that tries to separate us from him even if it's us in order to win us back and save us. So God's anger is the opposite from what is expressed in the curse raka because he never discounts us as nothing or nobodies. He loves us, he values us, and he wants the very best for us. Whereas our anger is full of the curse raka, sneering, contempt, even if we manage to keep it well bottled up and hidden away in our hearts, it's there. It's especially there whenever we are resentful. That's when we think of that person and we start to imagine things going badly for them and we dwell on that and we enjoy it. And it's not just speaking contempt to others. It's just as much or even more having an attitude of contempt. Now, we can wear a friendly smile, even a Christian smile, and yet in our hearts be sneering. But why does Jesus say that it is equivalent to murder? Because, as Jesus says, what matters most is what's going on in our hearts. He's concerned with our inner integrity and the difference between a person who is contemptuous of others and a murderer can be only the environment that they grew up in. There but for the grace of God when I became involved in prison ministry, I realised that in essence there wasn't a whole lot of difference between me and the person sitting on the other side of the table. But Jesus is saying that wanting someone to cease to exist, wanting it in our hearts is the equivalent in God's eyes to making it a reality. that's because counting someone as this is because we're counting someone as worthless whom God created and redeemed in his image and whom he loves eternally now the uh, commandment that jesus is referring to in this teaching is the fifth commandment you shall not kill or murder and he equates this with the curse raka The positive form of that commandment is the second greatest commandment, as Jesus called it, to love your neighbour as yourself. So we could put all this together and say, God's law says this, we are not to curse others, but we're to love them. Maybe it's perfectly clear to us already, but we'll never do what God's law says. That's our second point. Now, I'm sure most of us are very decent, upright, law-abiding citizens who do a lot of good things. Nonetheless, to fulfil God's law with integrity in our innermost heart, with no sinful motive whatsoever, with no trace of raka spirit, is not possible. Jesus even holds up the most decent, upright churchgoers of all, the Pharisees. And what does he say? I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And and the Pharisees, they were absolutely the best. They were devoted to the word of God and worship. They were responsible for enormous charitable work amongst the poor and needy. They were meticulous in following God's laws. But still, even their very best wasn't good enough. We're required to have better righteousness than that. What that means for us is that the very best we can do will likewise not be up to scratch. Isaiah 64.4 says, Even our righteous deeds, the very best, are filthy rags. Which, as I said, doesn't mean that we don't do a lot of good. We do. But everything we do is also mixed up with bad motives that taint everything. John says, none of us is without sin and if we claim that we are, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Hope we're hearing the good news in this. Hang in there. We cannot do God's law. Yet, point three, in and through Christ, we can. How can that be? Well, Jesus says in verse 17 in Matthew 5, I came to fulfil the law. And there are two ways you can fulfil the law one, you can obey it, or two, you can pay the penalty for not obeying it. Jesus did both. As a man, he perfectly obeyed God's law. He was without sin, the Bible tells us. He's the only human being to have ever done that. Where we always fail, Jesus succeeded And secondly, he also fulfilled God's law by paying the penalty for not obeying it. The Bible says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, which is precisely what Jesus did on the cross. But why? He didn't sin. Exactly. We did. It's we who were cursed. Genesis 3 tells the story of that. Yet Jesus took that curse from us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And when Jesus uttered the cry, it is finished just before he died, that marked the completion of his payment for our sin. Jesus has fulfilled God's law in both ways for us, for our benefit. How do those benefits look and work out in our lives? Listen to these words from John Calvin. It follows from this gospel that every good thing we could think or desire is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, sin offering for our righteousness. He died for our life. So that by him, wrath is appeased. Darkness turned to light. Fear reassured. Debt cancelled. Labor lightened. Sadness made merry. Misfortune made fortunate. Difficulty easy. Disorder ordered. Division united. Intimidation intimidated vengeance avenged, damnation damned, the abyss sunk into the abyss, hell harrowed, death dead, mortality made immortal. In short, mercy has swallowed up all misery and goodness all misfortune. This is because the spirit By the Spirit of Christ, we are seated among those who are in heaven, even while our life is in this world. But we are content in all things. This is what we should truly seek, to know Jesus Christ and the infinite riches that are comprised in him and are offered to us by him from God the Father. What did John Calvin say? That every good thing that we could think or desire is to be found in Christ and in His gospel. That He has done this for us, that He's fulfilled the law for us in both ways. That's all God's love for us, it's the doing of His love. How can we respond to that? Uh, it has to change us radically. When uh, I lived in the mid-north, a friend of ours, a farmer uh, from Wandera, south of Port Piri, had uh, the event happen where his favourite working dog, his best canine mate, died. It was a great loss to him and uh took quite a while but he did eventually start to think one day of perhaps getting a new one. And he was driving his grain truck to the silos one day when he saw on the side of the road a really nice kelpy dog just roaming around, lost. And he stopped and got out to see, and obviously the dog had been dumped or lost from a truck somewhere and it had a, a tight collar around its neck cutting into it and a rope attached to it. And he wanted to help and cut the collar off but the dog was very shy and wary and kept running away from him. It took ages to ease up to the dog but eventually the dog let him take hold of it and uh, he cut the collar off and the dog just ran all around him yapping with pleasure. And then as Brian climbed back into his truck the dog jumped up with him and licked him and sat right next to him in the cabin, a deliriously happy servant of a new master. God's saving love for us has to make us burst with thankfulness and love for him and has to make us want to do his will, delight in doing it and to actually do it. This won't be like the obedience of the Pharisees, the good churchgoers. What was that obedience like? It was out of fear and anxiety that they wouldn't manage to fulfil God's law or it was in a kind of dizzy pride thinking that they could. And it, it won't be an obedience in which we selfishly compete with others, judging and putting them down, cursing them, either out loud or in our hearts, raka. No, instead it will be an obedience based upon the grace of God in Christ, based on overflowing gratitude, genuine love and real joy in doing God's good will, and treating others, all others, as equal recipients of God's saving grace created and redeemed in his image and loved by him eternally. And more than that, because Jesus also fulfilled the law by living a perfectly obedient life and he has now raised that perfected life forever. He's able to share it with us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What did Paul say? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And in another place, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. As Jesus calls us to obedience, he says, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Paul says in Philippians 2, 7, think of Jesus Christ who in order to become man and die for us emptied himself. He who was the eternal son of God became nothing, a nobody. Marred beyond human semblance, the prophecy in Isaiah says, not even counted as human. Raka he became. So that we who should be considered raka are forgiven, healed, raised to become beloved children of God the Father forever. Thank Him, love Him, serve Him with delight. Amen.